to reply guys the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us i am kate willett and i'm julia claire how are you julia i'm doing so well i what a what a day it's finally fall weather i'm thriving <laughs> is this this is your christian girl autumn this is my christian girl autumn. <laughs> yeah it really is i am gonna become a christian by the end of this podcast as we've discussed <laughs> I went to Washington, D.C. this weekend. I did some stand-up in, in D.C. Yeah, how was that? Well, so I was. I have this bit that I do where I identify who people support in the Democratic primary based on their clothing choices. Mm-hmm. And I got different results in Washington, D.C. than I've gotten doing this in any city. Really? A lot of Mayor Pete supporters out there. Oh, no. Well, that makes so much sense to me, though. That really does. That's so upsetting just like a lot of milk toast people in bland suits <laughs> no actually there were very fashionable women for the most part and like they just look super cute and put together so the person that i guess that they supported uh, was elizabeth warren because i was like you seem you know you got some uh, strong woman vibes you <laughs> planned your outfit you like plans you like elizabeth warren and they were like nope i hate her i like <gasps> mayor p what yeah god oh my god what are your terrible politics if you love mayor pete and you hate elizabeth warren yeah <laughs> what do you you're all, you you probably just work for mckinsey yeah i mean i think the thing is is dc does have a lot of like consultant type people so maybe absolutely that- yeah that, that's why i said it makes a lot of sense to me that most of mayor pete's support is probably there and in like maybe silicon valley the people who are not in the yang gang let's talk a little bit about elizabeth warren because uh she had a hot hot sex scandal this week <laughs> which you know we love to see it as this is a feminist podcast and we uh yeah but uh, so jacob wall who's the 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 teen who writes for like turning points usa or something just one of those like hardcore conservative conspiracy theorist teens um he started a rumor that elizabeth warren had a an affair with a 24 year old marine um and he like put out these pictures of this guy with just like a ripped back and he had these like major scratches on his back and it was debunked like immediately obviously and because the guy in question his instagram is public and it was from like working out or something like that i I think he hit himself with a chain i don't know what those guys do (laughs) yeah but um it it was very funny to me to think about elizabeth warren having an affair with a 24 year old because let me say there is nothing that that woman loves more than plans and there is nothing that a 24 year old man hates more than a woman who wants to make plans absolutely and also it's like uh, this 
I was like, this is what you're doing to try to make people not like her. All you're telling me is that she fucks and she loves the troops. Okay. That's people who doesn't love that. <laughs> it's crazy to me that people tried to uh, slut shame Elizabeth Warren. Like, I know that that's always the thing with female candidates, but it's like, I just figured if you're like 70 years old that you would somehow be <laughs> exempt from that. They tried to slut shame Kamala uh, like last year. Yeah. Um, she dated Willie Brown, who was, I'm the mayor of San Francisco for a while. He's kind of a major political figure in uh, Bay Area politics. Um, and uh, yeah, he wrote an op-ed for the San Francisco Chronicle. And the op-ed was like, yeah, I fucked her, but you know, people should stop talking about how I fucked her because it's not relevant that I fucked her. And just because we <laughs> fucked doesn't mean that you should judge oh. her candidacy on our fucking. And it was like such a weird brag. He's like way, way older than her too. So he's like a very old man at this point. So oh. it was just gross. So that was kind of the, the first instance that I saw of uh, trying to slut shame female presidential candidates. But like this Elizabeth Warren, what it did catch me off guard. It's just so funny. And it's also hilarious that her, uh, her very famous uh, $50 a semester community college, their mascot is the Cougars. Oh my God. That, her tweet was so funny. Yeah. Like that was a sick own. So she, so people were saying that she was a Cougar and what, what did she tweet? Do you remember? It was like, you know, I'm very glad. Feeling very grateful for my, my college, which costs $50 a semester or something like Go that. Go Cougars. Go Cougars. Yeah. It was, it was an incredible loan. Oh man. But uh, yeah, that it's was just... some high level reply guy by Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. And I got to say, I fucking stand it. We stand. We stand. Yeah. Hey, you said that you found something very interesting. Um, you came across some of Bernie Sanders journals. Yeah. So <laughs> this is, um, and from a Mother Jones piece from way back in May, our friend David Spector sent this to me, and it's so funny. Um, they found uh, some of Bernie Sanders' memos, I guess, which are um, public records in Vermont. And so you get to kind of see this insight into Bernie Sanders' head, which is like so <laughs> funny. Um, yeah, some of, some of my favorite. There's not like a ton, but some of them um, were just so great. And it, it feels like reading Bernie Sanders morning pages you know if you've ever done the artist way this is like Bernie Sanders does the artist way deals with his inner critic yeah. and you know this is from when he was uh the mayor of Bur Burlington so okay here's one in a 1986 memo he wondered again about the future one psychologically dash what's going on <laughs> and now whenever I walk around during the day and i'm feeling upset about anything it's very tempting for me to just be like psychologically what's going on <laughs> there's a 1a i'm not looking towards the future there are no goals plans to meet those goals realistic expectations and then he has one again i i can't get started on gubernatorial campaign i am not dealing with l levi's president future i am not maintaining the house well i'm not traveling i am not planning what happens if i'm out of office in a year what do i do what do i want to do and then the last one is life goes by so fast the last five years the vicissitude of the last five years plus my normal insanity placed me in an uncomfortable position <laughs> now i don't think that bernie sanders is insane but i do think that 
this i don't know this reveals like a very human side of him he's like really struggling with self-criticism in the way that we all do yeah it, it reminds me of there was this great tweet about bernie when when the country was first being introduced to him uh in the last election it's like bernie sanders feels like one of those people who is right about everything what nobody listens to him because he's a professor who won't stop dropping his papers yeah <laughs> and that like uh this this has that energy this is one i related to a lot this was like a another memo and this was like this got me right in the soul because i feel like i could write this um <laughs> it seemed to me this morning that planning and decision making were two of the biggest weaknesses that i have not only do i not pay bills every month what every month i am unable to plan vacations or intelligent quotes leisure time activity <laughs> and i really related to the part of him that put quotes uh around leisure time activity it would be fun going whitewater rafting or sailing down a main river on a sailing trip or traveling etc etc actually i am better now than i used to be but pretty poor so bernie sanders like he was in his 40s at this point this was a long time ago yeah. this was like him having a hard time and he's obviously done you know he's he's done a lot with his life since yeah, then i think he's done okay yeah but i don't know there was just something i thought was like pretty it's very endearing it's very endearing psychologically what's going on <laughs> i really like that i love being able to see into people's true minds um and especially that clearly that's a way that's not there's no posturing there at all because yeah. he didn't intend that for like public consumption no and here's okay here's here's one more and this was my favorite okay um for years now, I have not lived a normal emotional life. My relationship to Jay, who's Jane, his wife, Jane. remains unclear. We pass time together, but the relationship doesn't grow, mature, or deepen. I have pushed everything on top of everything on top of everything. My ability to think, to cry, to laugh, and or to relate to other human beings is short. Year after year, editorial after editorial, letter after letter, media bullshit after media bullshit. So he's been mad about the media for a long time. But the part that really got me about this, like, you know, he ended up getting married to Jane. And um, I just think that it is it's sweet because earlier in their relationship, you can really see Bernie Sanders trying not to be a fuckboy. Mm -hmm. He's invested in the health of his relationship, mm -hmm. uh, you know kind of guy is like oh i want to grow and deepen the relationship not ones that i know you know and i i just think it's uh it's it's cute that those things were on his mind yeah in my opinion especially for someone who says that he has a hard time relating to others is that what he said connecting yeah others? i guess so i mean it's like the thing is is like i <laughs> bernie is just like a very serious person yeah he's like i mean i, I I don't think that you could be someone that like doesn't like people and have like as much commitment to helping people out as yeah, he, sure. he has shown throughout his life. But it's just like, it's just funny to imagine the like emotional inner life of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> it's very cute. Can I tell you who I think is the reply guy of the week? This is Hit me. opposite of of cute this is not cute in any way so this is in the wall street journal which is my our first favorite. problem with it yeah our so, favorite uh it's by this guy named gerard baker who is our reply guy of the week uh and this article i mean it's not really an article it's like an opinion piece um and he's talking about um this piece is about um how you know now that women 
are going to college in larger numbers than men, women are not going to be able to find anyone to marry. And the thing... It's like, women have never been more educated. Why that's a problem. Yeah. Um, Exactly. And the thing is, is like these pieces, I feel like this take is just reiterated again and again. Like Rebecca Traster was saying that she wrote about it in her book, All the Single Ladies. I just read that a few months ago. It's really, it's really good. And it attacks this argument from every angle. Um, And it's an argument, as Kate said, that's been like repeated throughout history. This is why they like didn't want to teach women how to read. Yeah. Like it was used by Phyllis Schlafly to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment. Personally, I still can't read. So you guys won yeah samantha ruddy our friend made the point that like you know it's also like in addition to being sexist it's also just like super classist because it's like someone's not dumb because they didn't go to a four-year university like you can people can be really smart and just not have pursued a traditional educational path it's just i don't know but like i mean yeah but but the overarching implication is that like nobody wants to date educated women yeah uh which is that educated women like i i think that the another point he was trying to make is that educated women would not date men who are less educated but he's definitely positioning women as the losers in this piece it's like i don't know if i would object to a piece that was like uh like if he had written the same piece and if it was like men you need to get your shit together and go to college so that women will love you yeah i mean i guess that would still be problematic but i don't think I feel like it would be a new take on it. There's going to be some Jordan Peterson-esque character who comes up with that in a few years. I can tell Jordan Peterson is the, um, of the clean your room. So women will love you school of thought among other bad things. Yeah. I mean mean, that, that specific part of Jordan Peterson. I don't have a problem with with that. Yeah. Yeah, If he's everything else about him is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. If he was just kind of a really macho Mari Kondo, yeah uh, just trying to get people to clean their room but the, the problem is really uh that's the argument that he hooks people with right it's because true. it's just like oh it makes sense i should clean my room it's disgusting yeah but he, then people are like he's uh, every he's everyone's like angry daddy or whatever but you know because of economic necessity you don't see a ton of couples where a ton of heterosexual couples where um you only have the male partner and the couple working it's just because most people like especially with families like need, need to two work incomes, yeah. you know so i i feel like now that these ghouls can't be like oh women should stay home for moral reasons you know or women shouldn't go to college for moral reasons like because people need money now because uh capitalism like they've kind of um the scare tactic for women is now like, well, you know, you can do this stuff, ladies, and it's it's not morally wrong, but just keep in mind that no one will love you. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's essentially, uh, you know, go ahead, get a master's degree, get a PhD, but good luck finding a mate who will love you. That's horrifying. <laughs> well, anyway, we have... A really good episode for you this week. I'm I'm pretty stoked about it. I, I think this is one of my favorites that we've done so far, actually. I'm so excited that we were able to get this together. This is absolutely one of my favorites. Um, we're going to be talking to two out of the three uh, hosts of the 
Trailbilly Workers Party podcast, also known as the Trailbillies. Um, we're talking to Terrence Ray and Tom Sexton. They're so smart and funny and cool. And we had the best time talking to them. And I think you guys are really going to like it. And I learned so much about Kentucky that I did not know. Yeah, me too. That it- was so cool i don't know it's they're great and you should absolutely listen to their podcast because it's so fun and uh yeah it really puts a lot of um the conventional narratives about appalachia on its head and they're great all right let's jump in yeah welcome back to reply guys we're so excited today we are joined by two very special guests two of the hosts of the trillbilly worker party podcast also known as the trillbillies uh it's terrence ray and tom sexton thank you so much for coming on our show i, I always want like an applause track whenever, right? <laughs> <laughs> She's, uh, thanks y'all for having yeah, us thanks for having fun. us oh we're so excited um one of the things i really loved about your podcast is that I just feel like it's so good at, I guess, just like dispelling the misconceptions that a lot of like liberal people in cities have, especially post 2016, about what the Appalachian region is like. Can you talk a little bit about that, about why you started the podcast and what you really wanted people to understand when you started it? Yeah, so I think what what we did a little bit was... So Terrence and I had a radio show here at this very radio station where we're recording at. Uh, It's called The Digital Bedroom, and we talked about, like, conspiracies and sex and (laughs) all manner of weird stuff. And, like, we had, like, these interludes with, like, this really sexy, like, soul music and stuff, like, (laughs) for that juxtaposition. And then, really as soon as, like, all this, like, sort of like left-wing homespun media stuff started taking off we were like you know maybe we could add something to that milieu and just take our show basically to everybody else so we added tanya you know so we wouldn't get canceled and uh yeah it's uh it's been fun yeah i guess the political context um so we did our radio show from about 2013 up until 2016 and then um during Probably 2016 and, and 17, we were heavily involved in this organizing project to stop a federal prison from being built in the county we live in. And that's basically how Tom and Tanya and I kind of developed our sort of political worldview, just sort of in in that context uh, and in that sort of struggle together. And then... And we um, won. Yeah, that don't happen very often, but we won. Yeah, for now. For now. Way. I mean, for now. I mean, you never know <laughs> these things. It could, it could get bad again. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, it, it, I guess like right after the election, though, um, is when we started doing the podcast. Um, so yeah, a lot of these things kind of just came together at the same time, like me and Tom making media. And we had also been making media with Tanya and also all being in this organizing project together. Um, the group, the organizing group that we were a part of, it functioned very much like a DSA chapter. Um, it's called the Ledger Governance Project. I don't think all of us were socialists, um, but a lot of us were sort of adjacent to a, a sort of radical political worldview anyways. Yeah, the J.D. Vance book came out, and that was kind of our like our kickoff point. In a- yeah, yeah, it was the thing. I mean, like... I guess around that time, uh, 
as Tom said, there was this kind of like homespun leftist media thing that was going on, and the J.D. Vance book had just come out, and we were like, oh, we could easily roast the fuck out of this. It's so bad. Can you describe what the J.D. Vance book is for our listeners who may not be familiar? Uh, it's uh, uh, Hill- Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is now a uh, like you know what a eighty million dollar Ron Howard straight to Netflix production. <laughs> so it's so oh man, I read it when it first came out, and I just wanted to throw it across the room. <laughs> it, it, um, uh, David Brooks had the opposite um, reaction. <laughs> Apparently, he's still clinging to it. You know, he had that op-ed over the weekend about Flyover Man. Which I actually didn't read. Um, Which is definitely like his version of T-Bone. Yeah, too. yeah. Remember Cory Booker's imaginary drug dealing buddy. Yeah, I think that goes to something that I uh, that I was thinking about a lot when I was thinking about what we were going to talk to you guys about. And I think that like from the coasts, the way that people that the media talks about um, Appalachia and the middle of the country is either totally dismissive or like faux reverential in a way that's like almost fetishistic that's like oh this is where the real americans live but they actually don't (laughs) care about what happens to the people there right that's pretty accurate i mean there's like it breaks down across an entire spectrum of like the far right thinks middle america is where their base is you know like that's where they think they run a recruit from because they I don't I don't know whether by demographics or some other reason they think that like people would be inherently racist there and then the sort of conservative center right like sort of sees it as their natural political base because in many ways it is but that's mostly because that's where the resources are in this country the the center left I think has a pretty um you know disdainful condescending view of it and then the far left I don't know the far left has always traditionally had a really complicated relationship with the sort of rural peasantry or so i mean um and so i don't know it's really hard uh you know you know left i don't think the left has not really fully figured out i don't think anybody has really fully figured out except for the conservatives like in the center right have really figured out what to really do with rural america until i was researching your podcast i don't think i knew that kentucky had been a blue state until as recently as like 2004, the second George W. Bush election. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's kind of, you know, sort of a refrain that I go back to all the time when I read stuff like, like, you know, whatever liberals opining on what's going on in Appalachia. It's like, it was the most reliable blue wall in the country up until about that point. You know, I mean, like Jimmy Carter won West Virginia when he was running against Reagan, you know, for re-election. So it's like yeah, all this stuff is like, you know, what have you done for me lately shit? And, you know. So what are some of the factors that changed things um, for our listeners who might not be as familiar, like... Can you give us an overview of some of the ingredients that led to declining Democratic support in those areas? Well, I I think a big part of it is um, what we would consider like what people call like the sort of neoliberal turn, the destruction of unions, the slow and steady decline of wages. um, Allowing Reagan to kill the New Deal. Right. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And the New Deal and the Great Society programs. Yeah. 
and and then there's also the added feature of like capital now is concentrated it really capital is mostly concentrated on the coasts and so i think that for the democrats i think that they they see their base as more sort of like a middle class sort of intelligentsia maybe um and those people are I don't know. They're closer to where capital is in these rural places where we live. There's a smaller sort of like middle strata. And so in many ways, income is more, uh, it's more polarized and it's more sort of entrenched. And so, um, you have a very small sort of like elite in these rural communities and they're going to vote conservative almost every time. And then you have this like sort of vast, you know, sort of massive people who are either working two jobs and barely making it or and don't have any time to vote or be engaged in politics or anything. Um, and so I think that that it also has to do with part of it as well. But I, I, it is. Yeah, it's deindustrialization. It's declining wages. It's no, you know, unions or anything like that. And just and also, too, I just say, like the way the Democratic betrayal, I mean, when Clinton switched from, you know, like entitlements to block grants. Like that's got pretty devastated consequences for a place like us who, you know, when the biggest uh, social security lawyer in town goes to prison for whatever chicanery, it takes, you know, like 50% of the county's economy out of yeah. the equation. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it, it, it Bill Clinton is sort of the, uh, the, the granddaddy of that kind of stuff. And we really don't, you know, talk about that that much. Well, uh, unfortunately, we are a, a Bill Clinton stan podcast, uh, so how dare you? Uh, <laughs> like most feminists, we stan Bill Clinton. Boy, do we love Bill. Uh, <laughs> You'll be devastated to know that he's apparently dying again, right? Like, Yeah, I saw it on the, the cover of uh, the National Enquirer. He's down to 137 pounds. <laughs> yeah, the National Enquirer. Can you Enquirer. believe it? Which is my goal weight, um, but... <laughs> Um, so you guys actually, this, this goes to something that I, I came across a video, um, with the two of you explaining the concept of extraction capitalism. Can you talk a little bit about extraction capitalism and how it's, it's changed the community where you lived? Yeah. Um, where I'm from, so I'm from Southeastern New Mexico, uh, and the only real big or robust industry there is oil. Uh, and then where we live now and where Tom is from is, it's coal. And so in a lot of these places, in a lot of these rural places, the entire sort of like political economy of a of a community will be sort of structured around uh, a resource. Um, and then everything kind of like builds out from that uh, because the, the whole point is to ensure the continued extraction of that resource and to do it in a way that um, maximizes profits, externalizes environmental uh, problems on two people rather than companies internalizing them and having to pay for them um and you know exploits people to the most I mean, to the maximum possible degree and so uh, yeah i guess in our sin in our minds like extraction capitalism is is basically like people you know a question we get a lot is like oh mountaintop removal is bad environmental destruction is bad uh, surface mining pipelines and stuff is bad but like what can you do to stop it like is, you work outside the system you work in the corporations and try to unionize them? Do you work in governmental agencies? And the thing is, is like we've always told people is that like, well, the, the whole route, like if you want to work for a regulatory agency, let's say you want to work for the EPA, um, the whole point of the EPA and all of our regulatory agencies is to facilitate 
business. It's not to actually, you know, protect us and keep us safe. It's to make sure that, um, you know, these companies just check off some boxes and that they're going through a sort of like publicly, uh, you know, aesthetically sort of like pleasing process to where they can um, maintain the, the a minimal amount of support. Just in a, a veneer of right. doing the right thing. Right, yeah. Be- exactly. Because like at a certain point, like people would revolt. I mean, like if, if a community just came in and just knocked over everything and destroyed everything, people wouldn't put up with it. So I don't know. These corporations have to go through a process of like getting a sort of critical mass of the community on board, um, you know, indoctrinating. And I do mean this literally, uh, you know, there are, there are um, programs in our local schools that will indoctrinate students about the benefits of coal. Um, and, and this is not just the case here. I mean, this is in a lot of other places like where I'm from. It's about oil. And when I was in, uh, elementary school, we had a coal day and they would talk about how God gave us coal and like, this is our proud heritage and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, um, and so this is the thing I think that we've been trying to impress upon Democrats, uh, is that. Well, not just Democrats, anybody to the left of um, Elizabeth Warren is that, uh, you know, to actually understand these communities and like why people vote the way they do and and what's going on there. It's like you have to understand like what capital is moving into them and what resources are moving out of them Um, because... Like, that's just how you understand. Like, I don't know. In the 19th century, we called this political economy. We don't want to talk about it much anymore. But it's to me, it's the best way to understand, like, why people vote, why p- certain people get elected and how people are sort of kept down. So I, I don't know. That's a pretty long winded answer. But I guess that's a sort of extraction capitalism to us. Yeah, one thing I was thinking about as I was listening to your podcast, I was wondering if you think that... AOC's plan, like a Green New Deal or something like that. Is it a good idea? Is a Green New Deal a good idea? Would it help? How do you want to tackle that? Uh, <laughs> <Captain>. <laughs> That's a lot to unpack, I think. I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean... Um, our, our, admittedly, our first take on that was like, there was just going to be like, you know, blood and guts <laughs> and God and country and soil type war over it, but... Yeah, I mean, I think it's still, I think it's still kind of valid. Um for the Green New Deal to work, yeah, you'd have to ex- you'd have to immediately, like right off the bat, you'd have to expropriate all of the nation's fossil fuel capital assets and resources. There's never been um, an example of that happening in history that doesn't incur some sort of mass rebellion. Um, you know, I mean, I guess we could sit around and sort of like hypothesize about what that would look like and, and be like, oh, it'd be fun to fight for Commandante AOC and Bernie as they try to <laughs> expropriate the oil rigs. Um, but, I mean, I do think that that probably would be um, the case. The, th- the thing is that the socialist left is not that embedded in the extractive trade unions and in the extractive industries. Um, we are making inroads into some industries in this country, but we haven't quite sunk our claws into yeah the trade unions that are are uh, aligned with the extractive industries 
And um, I guess theoretically, it's like if you were, uh, you know, you would be organizing within those unions and in those industries to be like, you know, oil and coal is seen as it's killing us all. It's killing the earth. It's seen its last days. We need to like exert leverage on the system to usher in some kind of green economy. But as it currently stands, the people that work for those industries are, I mean, I don't want to say reactionary, but they're definitely not socialists either. They're not leftists. And so do they know tricky. about Bernie? Have they are you telling <laughs> have they me heard the good news? <laughs> yeah. Are you telling me these people have not felt the burn? Yeah, he died. He died two days ago and rose again. <laughs> uh, the people that the people back home where I mean, where I'm from, uh, I mean, they, they really don't like Bernie because uh, it goes to the Green New Deal stuff. Um, but this, this, this is the thing like. Um, I mean, like to really understand how this stuff will shake out, like um, it's like I was saying earlier, like the left hasn't really gotten that um, embedded into those industries. Um, I mean, is it working? I don't know. I mean, I currently don't have any socialist rig, you know, oil rig hand friends. (laughs) I don't know if that will continue to be the case or not. I'm just not going to the rat mixers. Yeah, Yeah, you got to get some. What you want to do is you want to go to the oil rig and find the guy uh, wearing a flannel with like a hot beard and (laughs) just talk to him. Denim jacket with buttons on it. (laughs) Yeah. Here, just by a show of hands here on this rig, uh, who's read uh, <laughs> Critique of the Gotham Program? Right. <laughs> to see who see who listens to Chapo Trap House. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Right. I think that's such an interesting point, though, when you were talking about the EPA. I think people don't think of it in those terms. They do think of it as like a protective agency. They don't think of it as what it is, which is how you described it, which I think of as kind of like the HR of the environment. It's like it's there to protect the government. It's not there to protect the environment. That's exactly right. Uh, it's it's essentially there to serve as sort of a mediator between the public and corporate America, but it will nine times out of ten side with the corporations. <laughs> Um, and that's not even that's not even because of corruption. That's not even because the people at the EPA are bought off. It has nothing to do with that. It all has to do with the fact that we live in a capitalist society. That's America, baby. Yeah, and that's just America. So it's not, I don't know, it's not an indictment on the people that work at the EPA or anything. Like, that's just the way it works. You know, what are you going to do? Corporations are full people. So exactly. We, <laughs> there's nothing we can do. Um, Corporations have a right to choose. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Every corporation should be able to control its own body. That is feminism. Yeah, that's, that's our exactly feminism. Right. Um, this is this is actually the Sheryl Sandberg podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. So you guys are also, I think... If I get a read on your social media, you guys are also very online, um, as yeah. as Kate and I are. We're very sick. Um, we, <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, we're like this. Uh, and but so that's I find that that is where a lot of the the left discourse happens. It's like the most centralized place where a lot of like the progressive left discourse is happening. And it seems to me sometimes like it is extremely caught up in kind of useless minutia that people outside of like Brooklyn probably don't care about. This is hurting my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I say this as someone who was like in 
DSA here in Brooklyn and I get very upset a lot of the times because I'm just like, who cares about this? Um, do you guys ever feel like feel like that? Like the the leftist discourse is kind of like tilted to the coasts or is that just like indicative of all American media? Well, we were trying to start up our own DSA chapter here at one point and we, th- we threw a pool party. And we thought, okay, this is what's going to, you know, this is going to tilt the scales, you know. <laughs> and the only people that showed up were the people organizing the <laughs> the pool party. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, the point being is like, I mean, yeah, I think probably there's a reason for that, but it still doesn't make it, you know, right, you know. What would you say about that? No, I, I think that that's pretty accurate. Um, I mean, the left has always kind of struggled with this. This is like, this is kind of an interesting thing. It's like, um, I don't know, like leftist radicals do generally come from the sort of like intelligentsia or the sort of professional managerial class or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, we do sort of, and, and so I think that this is maybe why the left kind of goes through these like cycles of being in a subculture and then or struggling with trying to do mass politics. Like, I guess in the seventies, the left was very much a subculture and then, but now, I mean, it's this, it's it's weird. You're right. Like a lot of it does happen on Twitter, um, but then there's this other element to it where I guess like Bernie would be the, um, the sort of case study for like what it might look like when it tries to like sort of explode out into mass politics. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I because I struggle with this too. I mean, um, people think that we're the sort of like authentic podcast but if you listen to us like a lot of the stuff we talk about like nobody would have any fucking clue what we're talking about because it's so yeah it's like minutiae it's so esoteric (laughs) that's true i think okay so like here is uh here's the theory of change that you will hear at like any uh party in brooklyn where there's a lot of like you know, beardy leftists. Um, and I'm not knocking it because that is literally yeah, my favorite type of person. I was going to say, but, now my feelings are hurt. Um, but so, you know, <laughs> like, like here's the kind of idea is that what's going to happen, um, like the way that things could potentially get better is that um, Bernie Sanders or people, progressives inspired by um, his campaign um or, you know, even people like backed by the DSA will run um, for office in red states. Um, And because they will be focusing so much on people's material needs, people will want to vote for them because it will actually improve their lives. And then um, these states can be flipped and uh, progressive legislation like Medicare for all can get through. Um, I don't know. Does that, does that ring true to you as something that could possibly happen? Like in, even in the best of all possible universes. Is Brandon O'Connor listening to to reply guys? (laughs) It would be little. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's, (laughs) it depends. Cause it's weird. The thing about America is that like a lot of our electoral politics are also, um, entirely driven by if it's not celebrity it's at least driven by like uh, a person you know i mean like the person running has to also be charismatic and personable so it's i don't know it's like i think that you're right some sort of leftists maybe do think like oh anybody with the right platform can just run and then 
that'll be it. But like people have to be, they have like, to be hot too. I know. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah, that's true. They have to be hot as well. You're right. And so, uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I I I mean, where we live. I'm not sure if it would really matter. I mean, like, this is a debate we were having this morning. Like, I'm not even sure if populist leftist type politics would even work at the state level in Kentucky anyways. I have no fucking clue. Like, Well, you have to have the right vessel, too. It's like you said, like the hot, charismatic vessel. (laughs) So, you know, like Ted Cruz. Like Like Ted Ted Cruz, Cruz. for example. (laughs) You know, I don't know about the hot part, but like, you know, Trump has rhetorical gifts of a kind, I guess you can say. <laughs> and I guess when you pair that, and also just the advantage of having been like on everybody's like, you know, Monday night programming for the last 12 fucking years before you ran. Uh, and then you pair that with talking about people's material needs, like that is the recipe, but I don't think in and of itself like addressing people's material needs, because all politicians do that. You know, they say they give you the world and then once they're in there, they yeah don't. Yeah. So I think it's like This a- is breaking my heart. Um <laughs> I I'm gonna need a minute to process this information. <laughs> wow. Well, I think this is why we've been critical of electoral politics at times, is because um you really kind of do have to like stumble upon that like rare unicorn of like hot charismatic um personable uh candidate um and that's just like in a state like ours like where there's been no efforts plugged into like leadership development among a sort of like uh political grouping like a left for example like, I don't even know who that would be. Like, the guy who's currently running for governor against Matt Bevin, our reactionary right-wing governor, his name is Andy Brashear, and he has the personality of, you know, a piece of bread. Like, he has no personality. And so, I don't know. It's just like, you're right. Like, I hear what you're saying, big guy. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'm answer the I'm from California, bail. and I'm, um, you know, my, my people are gluten-free, so uh, <laughs> I'm offended by this bread reference. <laughs> <laughs> know the room buddy yeah no but i think that that um and i i was listening to a bunch of your episodes and you guys have been uh have been very critical of amy mcgrath and i think in a way that i think is um is really important to talk about because she her um she's running against mitch mcconnell and her uh campaign announcement video went viral on social media and people were so excited because she's like a narc or whatever and um (laughs) but you know as her campaign has gone on and she's revealed more of her positions she's a lot more conservative than i think most of us would want her to be and i I guess i from two people in kentucky i would like to I just would like to hear more about uh, why you guys think she falls into that category. Well, she, she did say that the Democrats need to get out of the way and let Trump do his job. That was her. <laughs> that was her. That was her opening gambit. <laughs> that didn't poll well. And so, what was the next thing that her um, next blunder? Like this has been the most catastrophic campaign. Like, so her campaign manager bookended that like pro-Trump fiasco with bragging about getting the most popular sportscaster in the state fired from his job, who was also maybe going to run against her. He, he, they got him fired because he was writing a book 
about Mitch McConnell or something. Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting thing, and now, and this is just now occurring to me. But um, so Amy McGrath is kind of like I I, I don't want to say like a pawn because she is very ambitious. She wants to be a very powerful political leader in Kentucky, but she's also kind of become the like um the vessel for the uh, the resistance. Um, because they want to take down Mitch. And so they started this ditch Mitch campaign and like celebrities and all these people are pouring millions into this campaign. And it's been fascinating because the ditch Mitch campaign is kind of flagged out in the last couple of weeks because of impeachment. Um, because now they're in this really weird like limbo period where the resistance people really need McConnell to pull his strings to get Trump impeached. And so now they're they're kind of between they're the kind of, yeah they're kind of backing off of it a little exactly. bit exactly <laughs> yeah. it's been really fascinating to watch um, so like that's a separate issue from like McGrath's very bad uh, campaign in and of itself but the larger point here is that um, the the resistance libs in this country really were sort of pouring a lot of energy and money into this ditch Mitch campaign and they were using all this like red baiting tactics to do it like calling in Moscow Mitch and. And, uh, you know, selling shirts with like, yets. yets on it. Yeah. Um, and so and so the person they landed on was McGrath. McGrath is bad for a whole host of reasons, one of which Tom said that she's been kind of soft on Trump. The other, uh, which is to me the most obvious uh, reason and why I would never in a million years vote for her, I don't care who she's running against, is that she's a war criminal. She's <laughs> a literal killed people. Explain will... to me. So, um... <laughs> Why is being a war criminal bad? <laughs> um, I point. believe in the resistance, and I don't know. Yeah, K- Kissinger made it look so cool. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It is funny though. It's like it's like the reason the NFL still exists is to just sort of like bolster war criminals. Yeah, and like her thing is like it's very different from like just being like an enlisted person. Like she was like pacifying villages in Afghanistan using extreme <laughs> prejudice. <laughs> and and she's very proud of this, you know. Yeah, so. no, she she runs on this. She's very she is very proud of this. Um as are a lot of the the troop candidates are like Pete Buttigieg, um very similar. Yeah, I feel like there's this like liberal fantasy that like Republicans will vote for liberals in red states as long as those liberals have served in the military and you know it doesn't pan out in the polls at all like it it never works they never win and i'm just i don't know i feel confused by why people keep trying this yeah and there's there's so many parallels between her campaign and i think like john ossoff's campaign which happened right after the 2016 election was the same thing people celebrities people pouring money into his campaign he lost beto same thing yeah um, and who is more like besides Mitch McConnell, who the fuck is more hated than Ted Cruz? Like if yeah. you can't, if you can't win against Ted Cruz, take your skateboard and get out of here. That's, that's right. That's right. They, they always pick the most like milk toast, like, like uncharismatic people to run against like the real heavy hitters. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. they never run anybody strong against like the Mitch McConnell's or the Ted Cruz's or anybody like that. It's always just these dweebs and it's so weird. Yeah. Well, and, it, and now it's also in this weird, we're, we're now in this weird era where like 
The Democrats, for the longest time, um, they were running on, let's get money out of politics. We got to get money out of politics. Like, this is the big thing. And so their sort of, like, hack or shortcut around that is like, oh, well, let's just Kickstarter every campaign. Like, let's just get people to, you know, and that's really worked for Bernie. And it's, you know, it's been one way of measuring his success. But it doesn't work for everybody. Um but it's been fascinating with McGrath because a lot of her money has been coming in through yeah, like celebrities and rich liberal environmentalist donors and all these people. Deborah Messing. The whole campaign De- is yeah, funded by Deborah Messing. Deborah Messing. <laughs> Alyssa Milano. Big, big McGrath girl. Yeah. The and sex so they- strike is funding <laughs> yeah. Amy McGrath's campaign. Well, um, and that's that might be part of part of that. It's like when you're running against like the Mitch McConnells or the Ted Cruz's or whoever, you're gonna get you're gonna get like you're gonna get a name nationally, right? You're gonna raise a shit ton of money because like Rob Reiner's gonna write you a check for a million bucks or whatever, or whoever, right. whatever Hollywood liberal or whatever, Linda Dunham, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, it's lucrative, you know. I don't I don't even think Amy McGrath thinks she can win. Really, I think it's really just to build a profile to try something else or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's better than Pete, who's running just literally to move out of Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) Or I think I think Beto's running to literally move out of his house. Oh my god, absolutely. (laughs) Well, okay, and 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 to your point though, even even sometimes when there is a good candidate who has seemingly a lot of the right tools to win, like someone like Randy Bryce, uh, who ran against, was running uh, for Paul Ryan's seat. He was, he was like an old school union guy, an iron worker. He had a mustache. I don't know. He had all the ingredients (laughs) that you want. (laughs) And he could, he still couldn't pull off a win. He had like an unambiguously progressive platform too. So that's, that's why I think that a lot of people around where we live and I'm, you know, I'm from Massachusetts. Kate's from California. She brags about this constantly. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Massachusetts is cool. She's like, oh yeah, I've never taken psychedelics. I am amazing. <laughs> Look, I'm going to figure out how to do drugs one day and you'll all be sorry. Uh, <laughs> No, but like, basically, we've only ever lived in these like, like I or I should say I've only ever lived in like blue enclaves. And I think that the way that a lot of people talk about how to win in districts like yours, uh, or any of the ones we've mentioned is just it's a fantasy. I don't think it's, I I just, I think it's like the days of trying to reason with people out of their partisanship is, I think over. (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to be too fatalistic about it because there's so much more than we can do outside of electoral politics and we should. Um, But it's, it's kind of frustrating to hear these like fantasy arguments from people like me, frankly, who are, who have only ever, not that I'm making these arguments, but people like (laughs) me who have only ever lived in, you know, hard blue States. Right. Well, the thing is, is there's money in it. Like, I mean, this is this is like why I think we've always advocated. Like, I think for me, the best way for me to think about it is I've always advocated for trying to change things by putting pressure on the system whether than, rather than trying to get in the system and change it. Because the thing with electoral politics is that um, it is very lucrative. I mean, it's a massive industry now. You've got PR firms. You have advertising firms. Um You've got consultants and all these other people. It's become an industry in and of itself. 
And so, um, any in 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 that way, it's kind of like the nonprofit industry. Anytime you've got that much money coming into something, it becomes compromised due to its sort of uh, entrenchment in the system. It depends on the status quo for its own longevity. And so that's why I think we've always been more like, if you're going to change the system, if you're really going to fuck it up, like it's got to be an external force driving into it, like whether it's unions or some sort of whatever, I don't know. But Not to say you, you don't vote for Bernie or whatever the case may be, but you know that, that's not where politics begins and ends. You know? Right, right. One thing you've talked a lot about on your show is how few people are actually voting in Kentucky um, and throughout the South in general and how, by extension, it's really unfair for people to call it like Trump country when so few people actually voted for the guy. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to some of the reasons why electoral... why voter turnout is so low? Well, I think an obvious thing is, uh, you know, working people don't really have, <laughs> let's say you're a coal miner, for example, you know, it's like not the easiest thing in the world to, you know, go on your lunch break and take an hour and a half cart ride out of the mine, hop in your car, drive an hour across the mountain to go <laughs> to your polling station and then like repeat all those steps. You know, they just don't give you four and a half hour lunch breaks when you work in the coal mines. But uh, we have them in Brooklyn, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Brooklyn coal miners get four and a half hour lunch breaks. Yes, That's four and a half hours. It's very Parisian. <laughs> in the content mines. Yeah. I mean, and even if you're working at like, um, even if you're working at McDonald's or, or something, I mean, you're. You're on a 12-hour shift or something. I mean, you know, you don't have... In this country, like, voting day is not a holiday or whatever, and so you don't... But even if it was, I mean, you have to believe in voting as something that will actually change something or actually change your circumstances. And most working people don't. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is probably... Hopefully, this has changed since the last few elections, but I think for a long time, people just didn't pay attention to electoral politics outside of every four years, like the presidential... Uh, race every four years and you know if you look at the numbers the representatives that people are the most satisfied with are their local representatives a lot of the time so I think and again I don't want to put too much of the onus on like you know obviously the system is fucked and I, I don't you know there's so much wrong with it but um I, I think something that has felt like empowering for me is like definitely learning more about like the politics directly in my area but I also know that that's like a luxury as someone who does not work in a coal mine and who does like you know I can fairly easily get to my polling place yeah I mean um it's kind of like it's hard to say like uh you would also think that like maybe a candidate would sort of just go out of their way or a representative would sort of go out of their way and try to like meet people where they're at, like at work or, or whatever. But the thing is, is a lot of these candidates spend most of their times at chambers of commerce and, you know, those types of places. Like, uh, I mean, this goes back to what we were saying earlier about the EPA and about extractive capitalism. Like your um, sustainability and longevity in office isn't determined by people who work in coal mines and McDonald's. It's determined by people who are in the chambers of commerce and who are, I don't know, the elite of a community. 
It's so funny um, when you when you mentioned uh, nonprofits. I actually a few years ago I worked for a nonprofit for like nine months, and I just learned that the the woman who sat behind me <laughs> at work um, left recently to work at her father's business, and her father's business is uh, storing people's gold. <laughs> <laughs> Very normal job. <laughs> so outside of electoral politics. Uh, I think um, you've talked a lot about the labor movement in Kentucky, and I was wondering if you could give us an overview of some things to potentially be optimistic about there. Well, uh, UAW workers are on strike right now for General Motors. Um, There's a factory in western Kentucky in Bowling Green. Uh, They're striking. Uh, We have Bowling Green is where the massacre was. Is that correct? The Bowling, Bowling Green, Green Massacre? Yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> Same place. Same place. <laughs> There's also a Corvette Museum there. And there was the big sinkhole. Do you remember that? When the big sinkhole opened in the Corvette Museum and all those like cars went in to yeah. hell? I didn't hear about Is that. Is that real? I, yeah, yeah, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, but nobody died or fell in the hole, which I find highly suspicious. Well, then Very that, weird. what a waste. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a few big car... Uh, there's also a few additional car manufacturing centers here in Kentucky for Toyota. Um, Then there's the bourbon industry, which is fairly unionized um, and even went on strike for about a week or two earlier this year. Um, They're a a huge industry in the state is healthcare. um, And uh, those workers are mostly unionized by United Steelworkers, and then I think the sort of final component to this sort of mosaic is the teachers. Um, service industry workers are not that unionized. And I think that that's kind of the missing link here. And I think that this is sort of what we've been sort of preaching on our show for a while, is that um, you can have these larger trade unions, you can have teachers with unions, but the li- the missing link is you need the service industry. Um, and that's, you know, everybody from cashiers to wait staff i think that uh you need those all sort of like working together i don't know how you knit them together like this um we're still you know figuring this out ourselves and we aren't sociologists or anything we're just a couple people with a podcast so there is nothing more important to change than leftist comedy podcasting it's Uh, true (laughs) that is how it happens and uh you will never convince me otherwise (laughs) Um, I've said it. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We're the real heroes. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> yep. First uh, responders. We are, responders. We're like the woke Amy McGrath. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. That's um, right. So let's say you were sitting in front of a super hardcore resistance liberal. Um, what Alyssa Milano? Yes, you're you're okay. talking to Alyssa Milano. Um, she's she's still on the sex strike, so she has free time. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you What do you feel like? Let's say you know she's she's sitting there. Uh, you have her undivided attention. What are the biggest misconceptions that you want to clear up for someone like Alyssa Milano? Gosh. I have a lot of things to say about her career, but that's not what you're asking. <laughs> um, well, yeah, go for that. No, you go for Let me it, think Tom. About that for a second. About do you mean? Do, are you? Do you mean about 
Appalachia specifically or more yeah, about the Yeah, I mean about the way that like, let's say, you know, Pod Save America, like yeah. just kind of typical center left media um, and their Twitter stands, the way they talk about the Appalachian region yeah. um, and, you know, what might help there. Like, wh- what, what do you think the biggest things that people get wrong are? Um, well... I think what we said before, um, you can't use voting as a sort of gauge to determine that sort of like political temperament of a region. Um, you have to look at, uh, you know, their podcasts. I know you have yeah. to look at their podcasts, <laughs> yeah, that's right. their media, <laughs> <laughs> their cultural products. Um, no, I mean, for us, it all comes down to the resources itself. Like what, what is being produced? What's coming out of the ground? Like, what are the raw resources that are being extracted and to what use? Who's doing that extraction? Um, who's being exploited in that process? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's one thing we say all the time, and Terrence has brought up a bunch of times. It's like, there are still people dying of incurable lung disease so we can turn our lights on every day. Like, we're doing this podcast, and there's a real human toll that we don't even think about. You know what I'm saying? And it happens in places like where we're from. And, you know, that's where I would start with, honestly, is just like, you know, quit rejecting the humanity of people. Quit saying, like, heartless shit like, oh, well, you voted the wrong way, so you get what you deserve. Like, you don't stop using your fucking electricity. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's just insane, I think. Yeah, and it's <clears throat> sort of what we were talking about earlier. It's like, um, for voting to actually, like, change something, like, there, there's so many factors that have to line up right. You have to have the sort of right vessel and the right personality. You have to have... Uh, political conditions where people actually can vote um like we live in 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 a i mean some would say it's like a broken system but i mean i i believe it's working mostly as it should i think that like this is the system we live in um if you want things to get better you have to sort of work towards overthrowing it i don't think elizabeth milano is gonna be down for that (laughs) elizabeth milano elizabeth milano (laughs) elizabeth milano that's just some kind of really intense mashup of More Alyssa Elizabeth Milano Warren. taking on Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, we are going to break up the big banks with a sex strike. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I would do it. Um, yeah, that's right. I've been reading a lot about uh, uh, about the three of you. And um, I'm very impressed because I you guys are not just like you're not only hosting a leftist podcast, you're actually like walking the walk of your politics, which I think honestly is just something that not everybody in the leftist podcast space does. Julia is being very passive aggressive towards me right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Uh, This is particularly just for my dad who also hosts a leftist podcast. Uh, <laughs> the no. Republican my, Repu- dad. my Republican dad. Uh, no, but um, you guys both do work in your, in your communities outside of the show, obviously. And I think that it's so important to do that. And it's so important to kind of like live your beliefs in that way. And, and so what I would want to ask about that is what advice would you give to people who want to get involved and maybe don't want to go the electoral politics route in terms of, you know, getting involved in, but want to still like make a difference in their communities? Like what advice would you have for them? Well, um, 
Well, the thing about us is we're flush with opportunities for, for that kind of stuff, just by virtue of the fact we live in such a yeah kind of a broken place. I don't. I mean, I hate to frame it like that, but you know what I'm saying. I, I, would, I would advise people to get involved with prisons. Prisons are the site of yeah. so much of what is wrong with this society, um, and you get to see really what's, I don't know, like just kind of like what laws are for who benefits uh who doesn't and um and the thing is is that and what i mean by getting involved with prisons i mean like there's all kinds of programs that people do like we have a program here where we uh we're surrounded on like five sides by um prisons and so at our radio station we we take calls from people who have family members in the prison um because it costs money to call in and out of a prison and a prisoner doesn't get to talk to their family members. Um, and so we take calls from those people and then broadcast them back out to the prisoners. So there's that. Like if you have a community radio station, um, that's a very easy program to do and set up. But then there's also um, like, you know, delivering books, uh, speaking with prisoners on a more uh, day-to-day basis. I mean, like, I don't know. Again, the the reason I say that is because it is a radicalizing experience, but also at the same time, um, it's just the principal thing. I mean, if you look at what happened with like the Botham John murder and the cop that just, you know, you know, with all that deal, and then the guy that that gave testimony that convicted the cop gets murdered out of nowhere. I mean, yeah. like. We really have to do think about like how we're going to push back sort of against not only the prison industrial complex, but also like their foot soldiers, yeah, the, the police, police and all this stuff. So I think, yeah, plugging in with the prisons is super important and something pretty much anybody could do anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's important because it, um, prisons are specifically located to be outside of our day-to-day sort of transactional, uh, you know, interactions. Um, and... I don't know. They are also sites of slave labor. Um, this isn't some conspiracy. We in this country, we um, we do make things at prisons, and um, and we, we even grow food at, in some cases, like at Angola. This is all done by labor. And so, um, to me, like again, uh, this is like the abolitionist cause of our time. Like you can get to see so many of what's wrong with our society, and all the contradictions are sort of laid bare there. And then, obviously, there's, like, if you're a worker, like, unionizing your workspace and all those things. Um, Like, um, yeah, I I think that, like, it's weird. We do a podcast because, like, we just sort of see the world uh, and just kind of, like, outside of our sort of failures or successes as organizers, we can kind of just laugh at the way things are and other people can laugh with us or whatever. Um, But, I mean, really, we really are, um, I guess you could say, like, activists before anything else um and so that's at the end of the day i think that's what it would come down to if i had to choose between that and podcasting i'd probably choose between the i don't know i say i say maybe not me baby i like that patreon (laughs) it is good shit it's good thank you so much um can i ask you one more like non-related question my family is from kentucky and they are you the the will it bourbon heiress <laughs> I, though that, I am related to those people, but I have nothing. Yeah, that's my family. But I have like a, I've never met them. I don't have anything. 
I don't have any of their money is what I'm saying. But yeah, is that like a, is, is, do, is, are there like a lot of Willets walking around Kentucky? I'll, I'll go ask for your share of the Willet bourbon fortune <laughs> yeah. if you want me to. <laughs> My friend Kate would like her percentage. Yeah. There, yeah. There's uh, this like in central Kentucky around Lexington, Louisville. It's a pretty common last name. That's why I, I thought when I saw your, your last name, when I saw your Netflix thing, I think couple months ago or whatever that was and it's weird that like this is happening <laughs> because i remember seeing that but uh yeah yeah i think the wheels are fairly yeah i want to i want to go someday and like meet them and stuff i think i don't know from what i understand they're pretty lefty uh my trump family is my trump voting family is in california um that's but I don't think they had much influence over California's election. My dad is a Governor Bill Weld Republican. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, all right. Well, I know you guys probably have to get going, but uh, before we leave, is there anything that we should have asked you about? Anything you really want our listeners to know? You can find me on Twitter. Miss my name, Terrence Ray, T-A-R-E-N-C-E. Yeah, me too. At Ray. Tom Sexton. Not Terrence Ray. <laughs> Uh, at the Trillbillies is our yeah, big Twitter, at, and uh, at Aunt Bernice is Tanya's yeah. Twitter handle, um, or yeah. Auntie Bernice. Yeah, and you can listen to the podcast the usual. Yeah, the, the usual way. Usually, the huge places. Yeah, um, I we, but yeah, we're in a lull in a touring and writing lull, so we don't have anything to yeah, plug. Yeah, we record. just finished a tour. So, yeah. did you guys come to New York? No, we've mostly stayed. We've mostly toured in the South. In the spring, though, I think there's plans to okay. street fight and district sentinel, yeah. maybe. So oh, we'll, nice. be up, we'll be up there. If you come yeah. to New York and you want like help with anything coming to New York, let me know. Yeah, yeah, Hell yeah. Also, yeah. come obviously come back on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all come on ours too. This is yeah, fun. yeah. We'd love to. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys are cool as hell. Yeah, it's been a real <laughs> pleasure talking to you, and we loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Claire. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.